is the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of This Week in Doom. Joining me, as always, to bring the doom, uh, the green chicken himself, Duberg. Hi, mate. Grant, how are you doing? Good to see you again. It's been a, it's been a few weeks. Yes, it has been a few weeks. It has been a few weeks. And what a few weeks they've been. The world just keeps turning and keeps getting crazy by the day. You know, when we started Doomberg, we, we wondered whether we might someday run out of stuff to write about. And it's, uh, you know, 130-odd articles later. I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing in, in yeah, yeah in, in 2009. I had exactly the same thought. I wonder. <laughs> and, <laughs> and here, here we you are, are 13, 13 years, years later. later. Yeah. So, yeah, I think we can, I think the one thing we can rely on is that uh, the madness is set to continue until morale improves. Indeed. And so where in the world do you find yourself today? I always like to start by asking you that question because um, unlike me, who probably hasn't traveled outside of a, a two-hour radius of my home since COVID, <laughs> you seem to find well, yourself... All over the place. So where are you now? Uh, I am currently in Scotland, of all places. Scotland. Bonnie Scotland. Um, I, I got on a plane in London. It was 32 degrees and warnings of a heat wave. I landed in Glasgow an hour later. It was 16 degrees and pouring with rain. There is so far, our US-based listeners, uh, Grant, is speaking in um, a globalist elitist code known as um, the metric system and is referring to degrees Celsius. Ah, I apologize. Yes, I'm referring to degrees Celsius, the common currency of Europe these days. <laughs> I, I've given up. I used to be a Fahrenheit guy. It didn't make much yeah. sense to me. And now I kind of vaguely know that 32 is hot and 16 is mild. So I've kind of, I've, I've, I've given up. I've wow. given up fighting it. The World Economic Forum approves of your use of that particular unit. I'm sure. I'm sure I will now, I will now receive some kind of special credit, no doubt. It'll go on my file. You can spend extra carbon credits on your app. Yeah. Talking of carbon credits, there's a, there's a couple of pieces you put out in the last week that I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and seeing as you mentioned carbon credits, we should probably go to the energy-related one first, um, which you put out, uh, I think, at the tail end of last week, Malthusian malarkey, which, um, once again, you know, it's fascinating to view the energy complex through your eyes because... Um, Frankly, no one's better at highlighting the absurdities of this whole thing. And, and I think we get lost today in the constant news flow. And I think the, the, the problem with energy and climate and green energy in particular is that people have already picked a side and they just turn off anything they, they read about this stuff now that, that isn't in the echo chamber. And so I think you miss a lot of the stories that are going on. I think you miss a lot of the crazy policies and you miss a lot of the, the kind of chicanery that goes along with with this transition that has been so aggressively laid out by politicians that for the most part have no concept of whether they can be met or not but they the great sound bites to put out and get votes so so let's kick off with that one and there's another one I want to talk about after this but let's kick off about with Malthusian malarkey and perhaps the best way to do that is for you to kind of frame what you were talking about sure it was a controversial piece I must say um, we got a few 
pointed emails in response. And, and I'll explain the basis of the controversy as we go through the piece. But at its core, there's an ugly history to the genesis of what we would consider the sort of modern environmental movement, especially the more radical parts of it. And that history is as follows. It was essentially born out of eugenics. And um, this is a history that the modern environmental movement would like to be erased, of course, and, and they rarely mention it. And we brought it back um, to print, uh, inspired by the work of others, which we reference in the piece, for a very specific reason, which I'll get to. But let's cover the history first. It's, it's easy to forget that in the 50s and 60s and 70s, when much of the sort of radicalism that is the sort of foundation of the environmental movement was born, there was a huge scare of uh, what was known as sort of population explosion. So the theory, uh, which seems seductive and logical um, when presented without the full picture, uh, goes as follows. The growth of populations uh, is exponential and the growth of our capacity to sustain such populations is linear. And so inevitably, as Robert Malthus first articulated back in the late 1700s, early 1800s, uh, in a rather regrettable book that he published at the time called An Essay on the Principle of Population. At its core, those two axioms that um, the human population grows exponentially and our capacity to sustain it grows only linearly means that you have these endless cycles of boom, bust, and massive suffering. And wouldn't it be far better to just proactively prevent such population explosions through a combination of birth control and then what um, Malthus framed as, quote, permitting higher mortality rates, which we described in the piece as a euphemism that can only have been penned from the comfort of a university office. Um, yes. And so um, because of the sort of the eugenics foundation of modern environmentalism, um, there was a massive and early uh, opposition to nuclear energy. And many of the lies about the consequences of nuclear energy or the things about nuclear energy that, that should make you afraid of it were born um, out of a Malthusian uh, framework where um, such lies were justified because they had an intent to decrease the population of the planet. And so the, the origination of the opposition to nuclear energy flows from a knowing desire to shield themselves predominantly from a population explosion by you know, allowing the rest of the world to have cheap, abundant energy. And in fact, one of the most famous books uh, of the era is written by a guy named Paul Ehrlich, um, who's sort of a hero of the environmentalist movement. The book is called um, The Population Bomb. And he was later quoted uh, in, in a quote surfaced by uh, Emmett Tenney, who we, we cite in the piece for his brilliant essay in American Affairs called um, Who Killed Nuclear Energy and How to Revive It, famously said, in fact, giving society cheap, abundant energy at this point would be the equivalent of giving an idiot child a machine gun. What is socially acceptable speech changes over time. And so it is a bit unfair to quote 50 or 60 year old writings uh, through the context of how we view what is acceptable today. But some of this stuff is just jarring. In fact, we unearth in the piece, we found a book review published in the New York Times from 1959. And the book title was called, quote, Too Many Asians. I mean, if you Imagine such a book being published today, let alone reviewed in the New York Times. The New York Times famously won't review or allow Alex Epstein's book, Fossil Future, on the New York Times bestselling list. Um, it just shows you how far we've got. Now, the counter argument and some of the complaints we got via email are, hey, nobody in the environmentalist movement today is anti-human and nobody in the environmentalist movement today 
or few in the environmentalist movement today would condone such thinking. And our counter to that is the propaganda of the era persists. Um, and as we say in the piece, if you believe nuclear waste is a real issue that we can't handle relative to the benefits of nuclear power, the trade-offs are just amazing. If you think nuclear waste is a real issue, you are either most likely a victim of propaganda or a knowing architect of it. And so that propaganda was born out of this movement. And by the way, the Sierra Club and Greenpeace and other similar organizations are advocating for policies still today that provably result in devastating consequences for humanity, including starvation and death. And so if you are an organization that was born out of the eugenics movement and your policy advocation today would lead to death by the hundreds of millions, it's on you to disprove that you have somehow stepped away from your origins. Um, those origins are real. We laid them out in the piece and, um, and it needs to be spoken to. So I'm at a bit of a loss to understand why this was so controversial. Well, people are always looking to be <laughs> I'm offended. <laughs> you know? I mean, seriously. Um, no, look, it was, it, was, it was a great piece. And, and again, you, know, you, you did what you do so regularly and so well, and you lay out a case that's not opinion-based, it's fact-based. And so you know, it fascinates me that this has just become caught up in this ideological battle around green energy, which is if you are not all in hardcore green energy, then you are an evil person of some sort. So it, it, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that debates like this run into that brick wall immediately. There's no run up. You don't get a chance to, to take a few steps before you hit that wall. You're, you start at the wall and you bang your head in it straight away. So, so as you've engaged some of the people taking issue with this, how have you found that engagement to go? And, you know, what, what's the pushback been away from their opening gambit? So I would say, first of all, the vast majority of feedback has been positive. Um, so I don't want to give the impression sure, that this sure. was somehow controversial, um, especially since we have now limited <laughs> comments to our pieces to um, paying subscribers. And so we jokingly say, um, you're fair, you know, free to troll us, but you have to pay, <laughs> pay us first. Um, and if you're, if you're willing to pay us, you know, 30 bucks a month to troll us, then, um, you know, knock yourself out. Um, and so, but, you know, a few DMs here and there. And, um, and, and I, again, we just calmly say, look, our view is that um, the, this type of thinking formed the basis of deep propaganda against nuclear that remains with us today. And that the Sierra Club and Greenpeace grew directly from such thinking. And their modern behavior is indistinguishable from their historical and ugly beliefs. And so they want less people on the planet. And specifically, um, you know, this whole nuclear waste issue, as we said, you're either um, a victim of it or annoying architect. And then finally, the basis for lying about nuclear waste flowed directly from Malthusian thinking. And so when organizations that were born out of eugenics movement advocate for such policies that will knowingly cause untold human suffering using the same old lies, it's up to them to disprove what we wrote. And we stand by every word in that piece. Now, the second half of that piece was a little more uplifting. And, and one of the criticisms that we get, which is fair, is that it's one thing to point out the obvious craziness of certain policies. But where's the piece that gives us the roadmap to do something about it? And, and we've written a few of those, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. yeah. But by and large, you know, it's Doomberg and, and we have fun with the fallacies of the day. But the second half of that piece 
we dig into how Ontario is the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> like Ontario decided some 20 years ago that it wanted to radically decarbonize its grid. It wanted to outlaw the burning of coal for electricity. And it wanted to do so in a way that ensured the grid would be reliable and cheap and that the economy could flourish. And how did it do that? Two words, nuclear power. And so amazingly, over the period of 10 years, Ontario completely eliminated the use of coal from its grid. 60% of the electricity produced in Ontario today comes from nuclear. Another 30% plus from renewable hydro and or wind. And then a small balance of eight, I think around 8% comes from burning natural gas and some oil. And as we point out in the article, you know, there hasn't been a population explosion in Ontario. They seem to have survived um, this nuclear renaissance quite well. That the people are relatively well fed. They don't have the income inequality problems that we suffer in the US, for example. By and large, if you drove through Ontario, nothing odd stands out. It's a perfectly normal Western democracy uh, with a flourishing middle class and standard sort of politics. Uh, and the air is cleaner. Um, the smog problems are gone. Toronto's air is amongst the cleanest air of a major developed world city. And um, it's all great. Um, but of course, now, because of sort of a push, to um, replicate what Germany was doing with its energy policy. The grid has become uh, much more unstable, much more political, and worse still, a major nuclear power plant is scheduled to close in 2025. And so we spend the rest of the piece highlighting the work of our former guest on this podcast, Dr. Chris Kiefer and the Canadians mm -hmm. for Nuclear Energy and their efforts to save that nuclear power plant. And uh, good for him for doing it. He's proof of what ordinary citizens can still do uh, in the name of good policy. Yeah, you know, as I read through the piece, as you describe Ontario there, the other thing that stood out to me was that until recently, this wasn't even a debate. There weren't people out protesting about nuclear energy, you know, which just shows you the power that the media has to whip up a narrative around certain ideas, such as nuclear power. And we, and we understand it's a, it's a hot button topic. And it, having been quiet for a number of years post Fukushima, it became once again, something that an awful lot of fear-mongering could be laid around. But as Chris pointed out in our discussion with him, you know, the reality of the situation is, to your earlier point, is that nuclear waste is not an unsolvable problem. In fact, it's a solved problem, um, which has been blown out of all proportion. And, you know, when you and I had that conversation with Chris, I was quite surprised by some of the messages I got talking about the nuclear waste issue. And, and people who, to the best of my knowledge, are not scientists, are not nuclear energy experts, but have incredibly strongly held beliefs that essentially are nuclear is bad because nuclear waste is a problem. And that's it. And so, you know, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on why this has suddenly become such a big issue again. Now, in Europe, we've seen obviously a massive energy crisis, which is bringing former decisions around the shuttering of nuclear power plants into the spotlight. So I understand why the debate is elevated once again in Europe, but I also note that as the debate is elevated, there is a concerted effort to not reopen it, but rather to reinforce it. You know, have you, have, do you have any thoughts on that and how it may be different in Canada? Sure. So I, I would say there is a difference in Ontario. Um, there's not a, unlike the US, which has a sort of professional environmental class. In Canada, things are far more practical. 
the can-do reactor technology and the associated workforce that has helped develop it and run them and train others um, is persistent. And in Ontario, uh, in particular, when the decision to close Pickering was made back in 2009, the world was a different place. And so there was belief that a new reactor would come online, and it, and it ultimately never did. There was a belief that natural gas in North America was going to be cheap and abundant, as far as the eye can see. And for a while, that looked right, although recently that's been proven wrong. And also, there was this belief that this um, Green Policy Act of 2009 would um, provide much of the bridging energy that um, would be needed. And so all of those rationales seemed seen sound at the time, and all of them have been subsequently proven wrong. Um, the extra nuclear facility was not built. Natural gas is now four or five times what it was just last year. But most importantly, Ontario's attempt at replicating Germany's crazy green energy policy flopped. And it was both a scientific and an economic, and most importantly, a political failure. And um, for those that are unfamiliar with politics in Canada, you know, the Liberal Party is kind of considered... Um, loosely equivalent to the Democratic Party in the U.S. in the same way uh, that the Democratic Party sort of held the House majority for decades and were kind of considered sort of the middle party and the middle class party. The Liberal Party in Canada is sort of center left, not as far left as, say, the New Democratic Party, but occupies a bunch of the middle, both at the provincial level and at the federal level. They got completely wiped out in the 2018 Ontario provincial elections. And um literally like didn't win enough seats in the provincial parliament to qualify as sort of a, an opposition party. Like they got, went from a ruling party down to seven seats. Uh, it was a wipeout and they got wiped out again in the last election. And why did they get wiped out? Because as much as nuclear fixed the grid, the attempt at greenifying it, even though it was already less than 10% fossil fuels was c catastrophic. Um, and as we say in the piece, you know, almost without fail, um, the introduction of intermittent power leads to instability in the grid, much higher electricity prices, and frankly, a political tilt to the right. Um, and that's what I fear we're going to see in Germany um, as, you know, the year ahead base load electricity prices is over 460 euros per megawatt hour, which is unthinkable. It was 40 euros per megawatt hour 18 months ago. And so it's, it's amazing to me that everywhere you look, California, Germany, what happened in Ontario, Australia, as you know, the data is consistent and it is indisputable. When you do this, you screw things up. When you introduce nuclear, things get better. When you take baseload power offline and try to replace it with intermittent sources, things get worse. We are advocates for better. Look, if, if the reverse were true, if standing up windmills and plastering people's roofs with solar worked, we'd be the first to say we should be doing it. It, it doesn't work. Um, and so I, I don't know, it, it's pretty amazing to see, but Ontario is different than the US for sure. Um, although the experience of Ontario is very similar to what happened in Germany with the one exception, political intervention by the voters was allowed to happen. Well, yeah, so let's talk about that because it, you know, it does beg the question how this gets resolved because you know, on the one hand, you have incumbents catering to a base who they believe care passionately about this, but they haven't seen how much they care about it in times of not being able to heat their homes in winter. Do you think that there's a chance that the kind of strength with which the Green Party hold on to what let's call admirable aims, but questionable timelines, do you think that 
there's a chance that they may try and find a way to soften this and come up with some kind of hybrid model that does include nuclear power? Or do you think that that is a step they feel they can't take? Well, we're beginning to see some milestones. So um, as I've tried to advocate and as we've tried to advocate in our writing to our friends who are in the environmental movement, because we have them, as you know, we will engage anybody in polite debate who holds sincerely held beliefs. We try to warn them that the path function matters. And that if you go down this road of denuclearization while simultaneously opposing fossil fuels, you're going to end up in the guillotine. (laughs) You're going to have violent political revolt. It's just undeniable. And that if you do truly believe that CO2 emissions are a measurement that we should optimize our economy around, then why are you playing that game with two hands tied behind your back? And so we are beginning to see some movement, and I will give full and fair credit. Um, Governor Gavin Newsom and Senator Feinstein in California have now opposed the imminent shutdown of Diablo Canyon, which was a milestone that we've pointed out to look at the seriousness of it. There's beginning to be some political reconsideration around the three nuclear reactors in Germany, similar moves in Belgium. Japan has committed to restarting nine nuclear power plants, which is obviously what they need to be doing you know, embed all the safety lessons and followed from Fukushima into their uh, reopening plans. And Chris Kiefer's um, classic political, you know, uh, grassroots efforts to save Pickering nuclear power plant in Ontario, which we highlighted in our piece. And we we gave a link so that people could donate to his cause. And we donated to his cause um, because this is how politics should work. Polite discourse by intelligent people with passionate beliefs uh, politely expressed. And um, he's making an impact as well. In fact, we quote from um, an appearance that he made before Parliament, mm-hmm. which I believe we discussed when he was on our show. And, um, you know, another big factor about this is sort of middle class working jobs. There's 7,500 six-figure jobs on the line at the Pickering Nuclear Power Plant. And if we went to solar and wind, which are dominated by the Chinese, we basically get transient, um, low-pay installation-type work. Whereas yep. at the nuclear power plant, you have you know, welders and boilermakers and PhDs and lab technicians and all manner of professionals driving into a parking lot that has thousands of spaces. That money is spent and and the velocity of that money is high in the local community. And so, you know, energy is life. Um, Energy is the ultimate currency and nuclear power is the ultimate high density version of it. You know, we're working on another piece that has not yet published but might be published um, by the time we we put this podcast out. It's got a great title, Small Biggies, and it's about modular nuclear reactors and the approval of a new um, small modular reactor design by this company called New Scale. And we're digging in, and it's not a, a totally 100% positive story, but it's a very interesting story. And, um, you know, the technology exists. Uh, we opened the piece with the story of o- Okinawa, the Battle of Okinawa, and how, you know, through these Herculean efforts of, of logistics and supply chains, the U.S. Um, Fleet Task Force was able to stay in battle mode for 92 consecutive days, you know, fed by oilers and repair ships and floating hospitals and you name it. And um, after the war, they decided it might be a good idea to power ships with nuclear power. And this revolution in sort of nuclear-powered submarines, which are basically small modular reactors, mm-hmm. optimized for the production of power, not electricity, um, but the step change made, you know, diesel-powered submarines obsolete overnight in the same way that diesel-powered, you know, ships made coal-powered ships obsolete overnight. And as you step up the energy density ladder, engineers can work wonders. It's just, 
And so hopefully this energy crisis is the genesis of a rebirth of nuclear technology. And in fact, the fact that this design was approved uh, in the U.S. with the strictest of radiation controls that I think are nonsensical, but these new latest generation technologies are designed to essentially be fail-safe. And if you spread these out, you have sort of one sort of 10, you know, megawatt micro reactor could power a town of 25,000 and then you'd be done. You'd have your standard base load source of electricity and um, there'd be no carbon emissions associated with it. But even here, this is why we wrote the piece. Some BS study came out from some scientists, quote unquote, who claim that SMR nuclear plants produce, quote, 35 times the nuclear waste of standard. And it's total BS. And but that's going to be the arguing point. So you're going to see the Sierra Club and Greenpeace go back to their tired old arguments, tell the same old lies to oppose any new technology that allows human beings to flourish. And given their history, that's a pretty dangerous path for them to be walking. So that's why we wrote the piece. So what does it take? Because, you know, as you say, that it feels like there is a shift here, but it's fostered through necessity, as many things are. Do you think the energy crisis, as it continues to play out around heating costs as we go into winter in the Northern Hemisphere, do you think that is an agent for change? Or do you think that if we see a situation where energy prices start to come down, then the kind of foothold that the nuclear lobby has seemed to gain during this period gets given back? So a couple of points. First of all, as we're recording this today, European natural gas spiked a cool 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's trading for $68 per million BTU and change uh, at Dutch TTF. Um, and to benchmark you, U.S. natural gas is at 880 and last year it was at $2. And so, said another way, European natural gas is trading for 34 times what natural gas traded for in North America last year. Mm-hmm. 34 times is not 34%. It's 34 times. Like, that's a lot of times, uh, even where I come from. And so, the storage levels in Europe seem to be fine compared to historical averages, but that, you know, the flows of what actually is coming in in the winter versus what they can store, it it might be a little deceptive. And then, of course, German electricity prices, as we mentioned earlier, are just completely skyrocketing. And so at some point, this has to be, you know, um, we have an old saying uh, when we analyze politics, which is sort of the size of the hole that you dig and the number of political bodies you have to put in it um, has to be the same. And so either you could fill it with one or two big ones or a lot of little ones, but there's sort of a law of conservation here as an analogy. And um, the political price to be paid for such a massive screw up um, in energy has yet to unfold. And as you wrote in your brilliant piece about the EU, you know, all of these sort of um, fracturings at the edges and whether they'll make it is, is a fascinating story. But Given the drought that we have right now and the inability to get coal through the Rhine, perhaps electricity prices are signaling something beyond natural gas. And so how this all manifests itself in nuclear, I mean, it's such an obvious solution. And and as you'll see when we write about small modular reactors, if you give an engineer an excess amount of the most important variable, i.e. a massive amount of energy density, it's very easy to dial that down to give you exactly what you need in a very controlled way. It's impossible to go the other way. You can't start with ultra low dense energy and then convert it into something useful for the propagation of standards of living. And so either you care about people's standards of living or you would like less people on the planet. And again, that's why we wrote the piece. And, it's, and look, if we allow them to get away with 
ignoring and um, greenwashing their own historical, I think, scandals, then we've lost the argument. Um, and so once you view the sort of tired old lies of the radical environmentalists through the Malthusian lens that you should be viewing it through, it all becomes very clear what their true intent is. And then it becomes a lot easier to oppose them. Well, it's, it is a fascinating story. And as you say, it is evolving and will, I suspect, speed up that evolution as we move through summer into fall and towards the winter. And it bears further scrutiny. And I have no doubt that you will continue to do that. If anybody listening hasn't read that piece yet, Malthusian Malarkey, I would encourage them strongly to do so because it, it's an important argument and it's, as always, brilliantly laid out. And I think it's something that people deserve to read and think about and, hey, and come at you with any criticisms because I think it is a, it's a very important topic. But, um, but the other piece you wrote this week, Switching Gears for the back half of this conversation, I, I want to talk about too because you wrote about uh, tornado cash and the the sanctions being placed upon that. And this is something, you know, crypto is something you and I share a, a similar set of opinions about. However, um, I think both of us is willing and able to put aside any biases we may have about our belief in the either the value proposition or the longevity of these things to discuss bigger issues that they they perhaps bring to light. And this, this piece... Um, I thought was, I have to say, one of your best. And, and the points that you touched on, the points that you brought to bear and, and discuss were just so important, way beyond crypto. So let's stick into that one now. And, and why don't you lay out the framework for the latest piece, Storm Chasers? Yeah, yeah Storm Chasers, you know, Tornado Cash, nice little play on the name. So, you know, we, we opened the piece with a reminder of just how outrageous the behavior of, of Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was during the Freedom Convoy protests. And um, it's easy to forget that, you know, this, what we believe, aspiring tyrant, um, you know, um, basically gave himself temporary dictatorial powers, um, retroactively made protesting against his policies illegal, um, froze bank accounts of dissidents with no due process, and, and jailed organizers of an opposition movement that had some popularity and certainly wide international attention, um, put them in jail. And we say in the piece, you know, when this happens in Russia and China, uh, the West universally condemns it. But when it happens here, the first lens through which most people look at it is through the team sport lens, which is, um, is the person doing this on my team or not? And so um, then we tell the story of, of, of almost forgotten, but I think, and we think particularly terrible part of the story was when um, the crowdfunding site Gifts and Go was quote-unquote hacked. And, and the names of donors to the convoy were leaked into the media. And then the media ran with that. And instead of trying to figure out who hacked this site, and we make a reference to it, couldn't have possibly been Canadian intelligence, they went and harassed these people in what we characterized as a, a grotesque display of journalistic malpractice. So then the next question becomes, um, what if you wanted to donate to a cause? For example, we just donated to Dr. Kiefer's you know, mm -hmm. Canadians for Nuclear Energy. There might come a day where the environmentalists gain so much control over the government that they would outlaw any support of nuclear power and uh, such a political expression and donating to causes that you believe in are a form of protected political speech, at least in the U.S. Uh, doing so, you might, you, you might want to do that um, with a little bit of discretion. You know, maybe we don't want whoever gets elected to the White House next to know that we made that donation. Now, we did it on our credit card using fiat because I'm not afraid of expressing uh, our political beliefs, but it is, you know, privacy is not a bad thing. If people want privacy, um, that we believe is a fundamental human right. 
And the move against Tornado Cash, which we write about in the piece, is not one that we, it, it was not a surprise that they moved. It was the way in which they did it that surprised mm-hmm. us. And so let me sort of frame this by explaining to people what Tornado Cash is. Imagine I own Ethereum in my personal wallet and all of my crypto is in Ethereum and all of it is in one wallet. Um, so it's a, a substantial portion of my net worth, let's say. And I want to make a donation to an organization, but I'd rather the government not know. You know, the blockchain is permanent and, and traceable and it's, you know, synonymous, but it's not anonymous. Like if they can figure out it's your wallet, they can figure out everything that you've done. And so you might not want that to happen. And I want to make a, we say in the piece, you know, a, a, a woman would like to give to a liberal cause she supports, but she's afraid Donald Trump will become president again. And so she'd like to mask that. One thing that you could do is use what's known as a crypto mixer. So Tornado Cash is a crypto mixer. Here's how the transactions would work. In my normal wallet, I send $500 worth of Ether to Tornado Cash. And in return, I get a key that's only known to me. Then I create an entirely new wallet that's never connected to anything I do, and I don't connect it to the payment rails, and nobody can actually tie that wallet to an individual. I send that key to Tornado Cash from that wallet, and in return, I get my $500 worth of Ether back. And then I make the donation from that wallet, and that's the last thing the wallet ever does. It received $500 from Tornado Cash, and it donated it to Planned Parenthood. Pick your favorite. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. Um, that is actually the point of Tornado Cash. But of course, as we say in the piece, um, this is a a smart contract that just persists on the internet. It's a piece of software. It requires no supervision. There's no organization. It just computes as, you know, written. And um, it cannot distinguish between um, legitimate citizens expressing protected political views and money launderers. And of course, a dominant use case, perhaps not a majority, but a plurality of the use case of Tornado Cash has been to launder money. And in particular, North Korean hacker groups have been laundering, you know, cryptocurrency through Tornado Cash. And the government knows this. And so they basically sanctioned a piece of software. Um, And so all of the wallets associated with Tornado Cash have now been on the blacklist. If you were like this uh, woman we described in the piece, if your $500 had been sent but had not yet been claimed, um, your $500 $500 poorer than you were the day before because um, no U.S. person can interact with anything to do with Tornado Cash. And in fact, in researching the piece, we wouldn't even go to their website because, you know, these sanctions are, um, are sort of strict in the sense that uh, intent doesn't matter. And so it's a really fascinating situation. And as we say in the piece, and I'm sure we can get into, it, it brings up uh, several technical, constitutional, and political questions that are far deeper than you could imagine. And, and our thinking on this particular topic has evolved, thanks in part by learning from people like Lynn Alden and, and listening to others in the crypto community as we make our own sort of informed views on that space. But the sanctioning of a piece of software as opposed to individuals who have knowingly committed crimes is a completely new and dangerous precedent in our view. Yeah, you know, you made the comparison of, or, or maybe you quoted someone else making the comparison, it's probably more accurate to say, of highways, you know, highways which are not intended for criminals to drive on, but they drive on them anyway. What are you going to do? Shut the roads down to stop criminals driving on them. And it's it's fascinating because this is a sticky question. It's an obvious question to ask, but it feels like had this question arisen maybe 10 years ago, there was a far higher chance 
that concerns about privacy would trump concerns about potential money laundering, potential nefarious activity. But we appear to now live in a world where the first concern is not privacy. The first concern is the overreach that comes with trying to make sure that nobody ill-intentioned ever has a chance to do anything bad if we can help it. Do you feel like that's the governing principle? Because if it is, then this tornado cash move is very definitely the thin end of a very, very sticky wedge. Yeah, so um, we didn't say it in the piece, but we allude to it. Sometimes you have to let the reader draw their own conclusions, of course. If creating a piece of software that might be used for crime gets you arrested, because as we talk about in the piece, one of the developers was arrested in the Netherlands, taking that thought experiment one or two steps further gets you to a very dangerous place. So, for example, all manner of crimes are committed on the internet using web browsers. Is Microsoft liable for child pornography on the internet? You know, are the web servers that sort of host the dark web responsible for um, all the illicit uh, activity that happens there? Like where does responsibility lie for criminality? These are very deep questions. And as we said in the piece, there's hundreds of mixers. Only two, to our knowledge, have been sanctioned um, by the U.S. Treasury. And the only sort of characteristic of Tornado Cash that separates it from the countless versions of, by the way, it's nothing for you and I to copy and paste the source code and create our own Tornado mixer. Like it's right there. Mm -hmm. It's it's out in the open. And so like North Koreans can go and make 50 of these tomorrow and there's nothing you could do about it. So the defining characteristic of the unlucky developers of Tornado Cash is their software was so good and Darwinianly chosen um, that a lot of people started to use it which is something they may have been hoping for, but not something they could have known in advance. And so if you worked on a mixer that caught no uh, attention from users because it maybe had a flaw or it was just a derivative of Tornado Cash and the network effect determined that most people would be on Tornado Cash, do you go to jail? Um, And if not, why not? And this sticky question of selective prosecution again rears its head and, and we highlight an absurdity in the piece. So because these sanctions are strict liability, intent does not matter. If Grant Williams accidentally receives cryptocurrency from Tendo Cash, in theory, Grant Williams could be charged with a crime and punishable with up to 30 years in jail. So to demonstrate that absurdity, anonymous people out in the internet universe have been sending small amounts of ether to famous and well-known, i.e. doxed wallets of celebrities. And so... Shaquille O'Neal has gotten a tenth of an ether from Tornado Cash. Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coin, has received illicit funds from Tornado Cash, sanctioned funds. Mm-hmm. So um, a direct reading of the law is that a prosecutor could now charge those people. Now, I don't think they will. Um, but having said that, this leads to the whole other aspect of selective prosecution, which is if everybody's breaking the law all the time, and prosecutors get to randomly decide who's guilty of a crime, then yeah. you live in a totalitarian state. Like either it is, and the reason why, by the way, um, this matters with Tornado Cash is because you can't reject such transactions. Right, if, exactly. you have, if you have a wallet and somebody sends you a tip, you can't refuse it. Um, and so now it's tainted. And now your wallet's tainted. And so technically, Brian Armstrong's wallet should not be allowed to interact with any exchange because he has received sanctioned ether from tornado cash. It's absurd. And it doesn't feel very well thought out 
unless it's all by design, which is how we end the piece, which is we talk about the Lightning Network, which is a very popular sort of second layer overlay onto Bitcoin, which is meant to solve the Bitcoin scalability issue by allowing for far faster payment processing. Um, as Lynn Alden pointed out in our last Doomberg Pro call, the Lightning Network shares many characteristics with mixers in the sense that flows out are not directly connectable to flows in. And such anonymization is going to be used by money launderers. And so um, the question becomes, is Lightning Network next? Which would be a far bigger deal to the crypto world than Tornado Cash will turn out to be. You know, we're the first to critique the grift in crypto. We're the first to say that the valuation of these technologies seems out of whack versus the value um, that they provide. But having said that, we're also the first to recoil at government overreach and this, um, as you called it on Twitter, sleepwalking towards totalitarianism that we all just so um, readily accept. You know, I remember as a child, as a student, reading the histories of how society slipped into totalitarianism. And you ask yourself, hey, how did people let this happen? Like, yeah. how could this have occurred? Like, I know many Germans. I love all the Germans I know. The Germans I know are great people. Then you read the history of the 30s and you wonder, how could that happen? This is incongruent with and totally orthogonal to the people I know from Germany. Um, and then you see what's going on today and you see how the technology companies are not only sort of silencing, but punishing and censoring people who are trying to raise a hand and say, hey, guys, are we sure this is a precedent that we want to set? And yet here we are. And so now I no longer ask such questions. Sadly, I, I think I know the answer. It's incrementalism. It's the drip, drip, drip. And then one day you wake up and you don't recognize the society you live in. But this is, you know, this is one of the problems that you see when you, when you delve into the world of crypto. It moves way too fast for its own good sometimes. You know, you're, you're getting ahead of regulators. You're getting so far ahead of regulators that they, every now and again like this, they have to play catch up and take 10 giant leaps forward to try and, you know, head you off at the pass kind of thing. And, you know, I, I share your views on crypto almost to the letter but like you, when I when I read your piece, and you know, I, I hadn't followed the tornado cash story uh, closely. I'd, I'd seen what was going on, but I hadn't really paid that much attention to it until I read Storm Chasers. And like you, you know, my first response to it was outrage that this could happen. You know, and I, I'm self declared not a fan of crypto, but I don't believe for a second that people shouldn't have the right to do what tornado cash allows them to do. But to your point about you know, slipping towards totalitarianism and the way and the road that we're traveling on, it seems difficult to me that the regulators can do anything but chomp down harder on the bit they've got between their teeth now. And I suspect that is likely to mean more overreach rather than less, more kind of blanket regulation, um, less surgical and tactical approaches to this. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that this is just a, an outlier and there are cooler regulatory heads that will prevail? Uh, I, I fear it is just another systematic step down the path that we described earlier. And look, this is an important side point to make. We've written about Genero Cash in the past. It's a piece that's not as good as our at least recent pieces, and but we were very critical of it back then. But at the same time, we have taken the time to speak to the Lynn Aldens of the world and the Marty Bents of the world, and also to listen to the, you know, the critics of the world, like um, 
Bennett and, and George, like you've had on your show. And, and so like, it's okay to listen to people who have a different view than you have, because your views might evolve. Our views on crypto have evolved. I still think it's radically overpriced. I still think that they are provoking the government in the way in which you described. But having said that, the foundation of some of the thinking in the space is, is one that really resonates with me. And I'm more worried about government overreach than I am about Ponzi schemes and bubbles. Um, right, Ponzi right. schemes and bubbles are as old as time. Government overreach is an existential threat to my way of life and my belief system. Um, and so if we hadn't taken the time to politely engage with the other side, um, we wouldn't have learned as much as we know now about the crypto space. And we wouldn't have a more nuanced view of the space that still has the foundation of what we believe at its core, but is also open to um, some changes um, based on new data. And so we could write that piece, which was largely a pro-crypto piece, actually, if you read it. I'm more concerned about the government action than I am about crypto. But to your question, this is unfortunately, and as we end the piece, this is going to lead to central bank digital currencies, which we believe is the ultimate totalitarian gift horse. Uh, and I know exactly how they're going to roll it out. The next time that there needs to be a stimulus, you need to sign up at the Fed to get your $5,000 of uh, dollar coin. And 90 plus percent of the people will do it and there'll be some holdouts. And then those holdouts will be ostracized and they might lose their Twitter account and they might lose their Facebook account. And uh, YouTube might deplatform them or, or might um, throttle their ads. And those people will have been proven right, of course, as everybody gets onto the uh, central bank digital currency bandwagon. And then the next thing is going to happen is they're going to roll out, as we joked in the introduction, a carbon cost to your transactions, and then you'll be allocated a carbon budget. And uh, sorry, Grant, I know you have a speaking engagement in Florida, but you've exceeded uh, your carbon budget for the month of July. And so you're basically grounded to your home, but you can still buy milk. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> this is the future. It's coming. And the sanctions against Tornado Cash by basically setting the precedent that you can, in fact, sanction inanimate software, which is effectively indistinguishable from a robot, is a very important precedent um, that will be used to do the next thing and then the next thing. So in the end, the control over currency transactions is the ultimate power over people. And that's what's coming. You shall not be allowed to buy groceries unless you use dollar coin. And you'd better buy the right groceries. I think you've had your sugar allocation for the day, Grant. Maybe you should try some diet soda instead. That's the ultimate form of tyranny, uh, where nothing you do is uh, invisible to the government. And it is completely orthogonal to the founding axioms of the country. And yet, um, even here, I guarantee you, there'll be a long line of people willing to trade all of their freedoms for $5,000 worth of uh, dollar coin. Yeah, no, certainly I agree with you. You know, it's funny, you, you talk about, on the one hand, Ponzi schemes and bubbles, on the other hand, government overreach. And Ponzi schemes and bubbles are almost always self-correcting, ultimately. Government overreach is a very different beast. And we appear to be moving into a phase of the kind of overreach that, if it gets corrected, only gets corrected in a violent and traumatic manner. You know, that's what worries me. This is the kind of overreach that unfortunately works for both sides. It works for the incumbents and it works for those uh, who may potentially unseat them. And that's the thing that gives me the greatest pause is that we're heading towards a situation where it's 
politicians versus the people. It's not left versus right. It's power versus the people. And, you know, those kind of struggles can be won by the people, but not without significant cost. And it's increasingly difficult to see how the path we're following doesn't lead to exactly the kind of place that you described. And I think those of us that have grown up in the West, for many people, it's hard to imagine that and much easier to say, oh, pish, you know, that could never happen here. That's a, a you know, holdover from the pre-Berlin Wall falling Soviet days. So, you know, what are you talking about? But unfortunately, if, if anyone's read history, they understand that these things happen in quote-unquote democratic societies all the time and have throughout history. So, you know, I share your trepidation about where this goes and I share your trepidation, frankly, for how fast it could potentially go there because with the crisis that we're seeing in, you know, I'm, I'm here to say here in the UK and every day in the paper, every major paper has a separate cost of living crisis segment in every newspaper, you know, heating crises, inflation crises. There are crises everywhere. And as you and I both know, they are the perfect opportunity to shove these things through. And I think your point is absolutely right. Most people will willingly give up the freedoms they don't think they need because, hey, we don't live in that kind of country. Our government's good. And once you give those things up, they're very, very tough to get back. Here's all the proof you need. Um, bubbles and Ponzi's versus you know, freedom and privacy. The, the founders and the key executives of Celsius have not been arrested. The founders and the key architects of the Luna collapse have not been arrested. Um, we've not seen a perp walk of any social media influencers that led people into countless rug pulls. But the kid behind Tornado Cash has been yeah. arrested because you can take everybody's money, you can commit Ponzi scheme frauds, but how dare you give people some privacy? You're going to jail, buddy. Um, and they didn't wait on arresting that poor kid. Um, I don't know the background, who knows, but the speed and the violence with which, you know, they've reacted against Tornado Cash, which exists to basically give people privacy and is abused by criminals, stands in sharp contrast to Tether, you know, cancering out there, um, replicating every day to, you know, a peak of $80 billion in market cap. It used to be that a billion dollar fraud got you um, perp blocked. Now we see tens and 20 and $80 billion frauds um, on the front page. Everybody knows they're a fraud. Nobody's being arrested. But the developer who wrote a program that happened to become popular gets busted. What does that tell you about the priorities of the quote unquote authorities who, um, uh, you know, uh, as Alan Watts would say, um, are nothing but a bunch of do-gooders? which could, there couldn't be a worse type of person on the planet than somebody inspired to do good. Yeah, it's, it's, it's scary. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. <laughs> we call this podcast This Week in Doom. And, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that ought to be concerning people. And, and it's, it's funny. I was having a conversation with some folks this week talking about, you know, what it is to be a, a pessimist or a skeptic. And there's this idea that if you worry about these kind of things or you, you challenge the notion that, Markets always go up and, and everything always has a happy ending. You know, what are you doing with your life? You know, you really just need to, to get with the program and be cheerful. But the kinds of things that you've been writing about so brilliantly in recent weeks and months and the kind of things we've talked about here, unfortunately, are very real potential problems that people are going to have to 
come up with some kind of solution for. And, and frankly, for my money, the earlier you start thinking about this and the more consideration you give it, the better prepared you're going to be if and when, and it is an if, but you know, there's a strong possibility, if and when the kind of future that we've outlined in this conversation comes to pass. And as we've said repeatedly, um, nobody wants us, Doomberg, to be wrong more than Doomberg. Um, yeah, and that's, exactly. that's the, the brilliant thing about, about what we write. We don't have a desire to be proven right. We're trying to proactively be proven wrong. And in this case, both the opposition to nuclear energy that we started talking about and now this ever-encroaching invasion of, of citizens' privacy, both of those are leading to bad outcomes. And so we'd rather they don't happen. Yeah, amen, and more power to you. Well, listen, Dumi, um, I mean, I can't believe this has been an hour now. It's flown by, which is ironic for a chicken because it's the last thing you can ever do. But as always, it's been educational and terrifying in equal measure. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure everybody here knows how to find you, but do them all a favour anyway, just in case it falls into the hands of a few people that don't. Tell people how they can read your yeah. stupendously good work. Yes, um, at DoombergT on Twitter and then Doomberg.substack.com. Um, both locations have not yet been cancelled. Um, we wake up every morning um, and uh, treat every day as a blessing where we still have access to both of those outlets. Um, and, and that's only said partially um, in, 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 as a joke. Um, but uh, any support that you can give us, greatly appreciated. You know, we've been uh, flying up the leaderboard on Substack, as you might say. Um, and it's been a really wonderful experience. It truly is the work of our lives. Um, these pieces are as doomy as they are. Um, we feel like we're doing our part. You know, um, writing the piece about Canadians for Nuclear Energy was a way to lend our platform to an important topic. And, and it is true that if you work hard enough and, and you produce high quality work, you can have an impact, you can build a platform. And to the extent that Doomberg um, is inspiration for others to do the same, um, we're more than happy to provide help. So yeah, uh, at Doomberg T and Doomberg.substack.com and Grant, um, it's always fantastic. fantastic. Um, these are these are my favorite uh, recordings and, and you're looking great. And um, world travel has done you no harm once again. Uh, you truly are a miracle of, uh, of modern technology. <laughs> if only, if only. Well, listen, uh, mate, thanks again for doing this. Um, it's uh, As doomy as these pieces are, I, I have yet to read one that I haven't laughed at. So uh, for people <laughs> that are frightened to jump into something called Doomberg, I promise you it's not all doom and gloom. There's plenty of laughter. Mate, thank you very much. I say, uh, I say we do this again soon. What do you reckon? Indeed. Thanks, Grant. Good to see you. Take care. Bye-bye. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.